Welcome to the Book Evangelist podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lisa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode 15, in which we'll be discussing The Time Machine by H.G. Wells and sharing our attempts to adapt a public domain work into a new story. Good morning, Marian. Good morning, Lissa. How are you today? I'm pretty good. You have actually been traveling outside your home. It was so exciting. I traveled to another home where I stayed for like 12 days, and then I traveled home again, and it was pretty much the most exciting thing I've done in months. Yeah, I I was excited just to know you've been out there. You know, part of me was like, oh, we can't you know, go on a vacation. And then I'm like, Marion, you never go on vacation. You just don't. Maybe three vacations in the last quarter of a century. So I'm not really missing out on anything, but I enjoyed, you know, living vicariously through you. Yeah. And I basically enacted my actual vacation plans from six months ago, which was go visit my sister. So so you went It's the only person whose plans from six months ago are still a go. Yeah. You get a gold drive, star. Drive to my sister's house, stay with my sister, drive home again. So, yeah. And sometimes we went into Lake Michigan when there were not people around. Now, I saw pictures of you at Lake Michigan. I'm like, yep, there's nobody else around. That's good. Um, yeah. I mean, I know social distancing says six feet, but we were more like, oh, are you going to come to this beach too? Are you 50 feet away? We might pack up now. Yes. I was like, there's not another soul. Was it really cold in the water? It was, um, it was pretty chilly. You got used to it, and plus it was exciting to be, like, out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Excellent. Well, And we went early in the morning every time, so. Yeah. I'm glad you had a good time and, and uh, got out and about now. But did you? You good? Did you have I any did. good? Did you have any reading time while you were gone or just? Um, I, I read part of the new Nick Hornby book um, that's forthcoming. I had an advanced digital copy. Um, but I fell asleep a lot when I tried to read because it was vacation and I was up late. So, yeah, that happens to me. I tend to want to be in bed and read at the same time. And that's a toxic combo for me. Yep, for sure. But yeah, I did not have a lot of personal space on vacation, but I did have a lot of good family time. So not a lot of reading going on for me. Well, I managed to finish the time machine between the last podcast and this one. So that's, you know, it's good. That's excellent. <laughs> yes. Was that it? Was that your whole reading? Maybe. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. Like, um, I've decided that doom scrolling is bad for me, so I should do art instead. So I've been art journaling. And so I've been reading a lot of books on art journaling. That's that awesome. Any sense? So I've been doing that, uh, which is probably good for me. And I owe... My last edits on my novel are due, like, now. So I have been just working hard at the actual writing part of the reading, writing life. Um, yeah. Those things both sound exciting. They are. They are. Although I'm, I am so ready for that bit of editing to be done so that I can do 
other editing. <laughs> different editing on a different project. So I'm it must sure almost be done because I'm so sick of it. I'm like, I hate you, book. Death to you. So, yeah. But soon you will get to edit something else. I will. It'll be very exciting. So. Awesome. Or I could um, read something, you know. You could read something, but it sounds like you're, you are reading. You're just not reading fiction, which yeah. is okay. Yeah. 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 Good. We'll go with that. Yeah. So. That's good. The Time Machine. Do you want to read the Goodreads description of it, or shall I? Um, I will. Okay. Um, Goodreads says, I've had the most amazing time. So begins the time traveler's astonishing firsthand account of his journey 800,000 years beyond his own era, and the story that launched H.G. Wells' successful career and earned him his reputation as the father of science fiction. With a speculative leap that still fires the imagination, Wells sends his brave explorer to face a future burdened with our greatest hopes and our darkest fears. A pull of the time machine's lever propels him to the age of a slowly dying Earth. There he discovers two bizarre races, the ethereal Eloi and the subterranean Morlocks, who not only symbolize the duality of human nature, but offer a terrifying portrait of the men of tomorrow as well. Published in 1895, this masterpiece of invention captivated readers on the threshold of a new century. Thanks to Wells' expert storytelling and provocative insight, the time machine will continue to enthrall readers for generations to come. Ooh. Were you enthralled? Um, I was a little enthralled because I was listening to it and I forgot that I'd read it before. Because I forgot about the Eloy and the Morlocks. That's like so the much whole of, book. I know. So much of the beginning of the book, though, is like, I have a time machine. Time machines are real. Watch me go. <laughs> right? And that was kind of the part I remember. That is a really I, good impression, though, Lissa. I got to <laughs> I mean, it's really good. It's spoiler. Like, yes, let us discuss the fourth dimension. At our manly, manly dinner parties. So, like, when I was listening to that part, I didn't remember that I'd read it. Because I was like, what is going on? This is so boring. And then when it got to the Eloy and the Morlocks, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have read this book. I know what's going to happen. This is terrible. Um, yeah. So, apparently, in my head, there's, like, two books. There's this thing called The Time Machine about time travel, which I have not read. And then there's this, like, scary, bizarre future with Eloy and Morlocks, which, yes, I have read. But it, but it is two books, because it's, it has two separate first-person narratives, which I was trying to think of other books like that. And it, I mean, the story within a story framework right. is, is pretty traditional, but to have two first-person things is, is really interesting. Um, so there is the whole... 1895 Victorian gentlemen discussing science and hurrah were Victorians. And then there is the entirely separate narrative of the Eloy and the Morlock. That makes me feel so much better that I apparently only remembered the middle story and did not remember that it was in this book. Well, see, that's what I'm here for is to make you feel better about this. And, and I was, I don't know that I've ever read it before. It's, I think it's one of those classic books, books that you assume you've read but you haven't you know or that if you're culturally literate you know enough about it to make yourself believe that you've read it or to at least survive 
basic conversations about it. Right. Or in my case, to <laughs> believe you haven't read it because it's one of those books you haven't read and then find out you have read it. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. Um, I also listened to it. I did check out the text version of it, but uh, these days I find my best hope is to listen to things while I fold laundry or do mm-hmm. dishes or whatever or drive in the car um, back and forth to the grocery store. And so I listened to it as well. And I will say that I did, and I don't know who the narrator was in the version that I listened to. It was the one my library had available to me. But I did speed it up to 1.25 because it was just such a ponderous Victorian um, narrative. You know, he's so slow, and I found that I sped it up to 1.25. Uh, it worked a little better for me, although it's very short. Anyway, I think it's only like four hours long. Yeah, it's an, it's a good novella size. Yeah, so was is. he reading in like serious voice? Yes, he was telling you about, I, you know, I looked out across the valley of the Thames, across the utopian perfect garden of weedless flowers and fruits. And it struck me once again that That's we had conquered nature. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah. So, but. I did like it. I have to say that there are some classic books that I think the writing has, the nature of storytelling has changed enough that the writing seems stilted. And for the most part, I did not have that problem here, despite my making fun of it. Um, It's a very Victorian book, but he's a a terrific writer, I thought. Um, And the descriptions were super interesting to me and uh, the kind of cadence of it. I thought it was really nicely written, but it did feel, you know, a little old because it's old. It's what? Uh, old. 130 years old? Is that right? Yeah. 100, 125 years old? Yeah. Something like that. So older than I give it credit for being, I guess. <laughs> or maybe I'm old that that seems like just yesterday in 1895. But <laughs> It does seem very recent as far as literature goes. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it hasn't held up better because it has that whole first person story firmly placing it in the Victorian era. Yeah. So and that we continue to get that big gap of time travel versus like, oh, look at this weird future story from a long time ago. Yeah. And it has a, I know that seems weird, but like a, a steampunk vibe. <laughs> yes. Not that steampunk was a thing then, but it has like, you know, machines with brass and gears and quartz and, and Victorian gentleman and crazy town, futuristic, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. it has a real steampunk vibe before there was steampunk. So I think it's more than just the, the father of science fiction. Maybe the father of steampunk. You never know. Um, so, yeah, I think probably that first person narrative helps too in that modern books are more likely to have a first person narrative than real Victorian books were. Yeah. So maybe that helps it make the leap into continued relevance. Yeah, it helps the readers get inside the heads and yeah. yeah. So here we are with this story. And you remember the bit about the Eloy and the Morlocks who are, I'm trying to say, uh, like how much spoilification we're doing here. I mean, the book is 125 it, years it, old, it, it, and there's lots of movie versions. There's lots of movies. So, so we have 
our narrator, who goes and talks to his friend, the time traveler. I don't even think we ever learn his name, do we? No. The time traveler, who says, I totally have invented a time machine. Come back next week. And he comes back next week to this dinner party, and the host, the time traveler, arrives late and disheveled. And comes in and says, okay, I totally went and time traveled, and now I'm going to tell you everything that happened. And then he does. So as we know from Goodreads, he travels 800,000 years into the future. And how is that working? I mean, it's a lot. Is it what you would have, like, chosen? Was was it what you were expecting if you time traveled no. in the future? No. Like, that's a big number. <laughs> that's... Um, I was not expecting that far. Like, other time travel things that I really like, like Connie Willis goes to, like, 2050. Mm-hmm. which, like, there's a good chance I'll live to get to there, right? Or, like, 1984. <laughs> or yeah. you lived through that one. Yeah, you we'll know, right like, by that one. Metaphorically and the actual year. Um, but, like, it's... 800,000 years in the future is a really, really, really long time. But if we're going to have actual evolution of actual humans, then maybe generationally you need that long to have actual evolution. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that it had the evolutionary aspect since it's only 1895 when this book is written. And I would, as controversial as uh, evolution continues to be with people's, you know, refusal to, you know, believe science and stuff, uh, I would have thought that at the time it would have been even more controversial and so I was really interested in this concept of choosing to show human evolution over 800,000 years versus picking let's travel to you know 2150 or something and see how it is even Star Trek doesn't travel 800,000 years into the future it's just a few hundred years Um, so I thought that was really interesting and I was thinking, like, writerly, would I have chosen the same vision for the future that he chose? Well, you'd um, have to be him. Because he was trying to make points about the things he wanted to make points about. So he used the Aloy and Morlocks to, to advance his own... His own worries about the future and his own right his own agenda about um social sciences or science i have to say that i like purposely avoided reading all the terrific biographical resources that you put out because i decided to read it with the, the the dead author theory of reading books where you just judge it like as itself yeah but philosophically He's clearly coming from somewhere. So why don't you tell me where he's coming from philosophically since I didn't read anything that he sent me. Um, I didn't reread it recently. So I don't know if I can accurately summarize it. But he, um, I think, wanted to show his concern with the Industrial Revolution and the effects that um, having certain people... um, continue to solve problems and continue to figure out how to 
um, run the machines and do the things and advance the technology would go one direction and how certain people continuing to be far removed from how daily life works and using their brains to solve challenges um, would eventually make them into the LOA. Yeah. Whereas the Morlocks still have technical ability. They can still make clothes and stuff like that. Right. And right. the Eloy just have to, and things kind of have to understand appear. the machine a little bit better. Um, which is probably one of the reasons that it still feels sort of contemporary, since those are still questions that people are, are struggling with, are the class system and... I mean, we're both parents of, of modern children, and... Um, Sometimes I look at them and I'm like, these children don't even know how to do the thing, whatever the thing is. Um, sew a shirt, change a tire, uh, build a, a whatever. I just brought home some wooden clothespins, like the kind without a clip, from my sister's house, some antique wooden clothespins. Excellent. And I had to like demonstrate to my kids how you would use them on a clothesline because just trying to tell them they couldn't understand the, like, the mechanical force that would hold things onto the line. Yeah. So I had to like fold a, we were sorting laundry. I had to fold a sock over the edge of a cardboard box and put the clothespin on and pull on it so These they could without see. A, without a spring, yeah. Right. Like, oh yeah, this totally is how this works. Right. So in some, there are, not that I'm the world's greatest survivalist or anything, but there, are, I recognize that there are skills that like my parents had that I don't have, but I have different skills than they had. Um, and maybe I'm, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'm maligning my children because they can't figure out how to do this. But if I need a tech problem solved, they're there for me. Uh, but the kind of the physical ability to create your environment around you, fix the machine, do the thing or whatever, which admittedly, um, I tend to put off on the spouse a lot of times, you know. I can put air in my own tires, but I make him do it. <laughs> right, which is which is but, its own thing also. Um, even if we just confine it to talking about cooking, like mm -hmm. cooking biscuits from scratch when right. you run out of canned biscuits sure. is a skill set that which, impresses my children. Because they're like, but mom, we don't have any biscuits. And I was like, oh, but we have flour. We can make a biscuit. It doesn't have to come in the can. That's true. And I mean, but I have had an adult friend in my life that I, I made a pie. And she was so shocked. She's like, you can make your own pie? I'm like, yes. Like, how do you get pie? She's like, we buy it at the store. I'm like, what even is that? You can't even make a pretty, you know, yes, make your own pie. Let me teach you how to make pie right now. So, and it. I suppose in Wells's point of view, we have like the working underclass of the Industrial Revolution, the people who are out there actually running the looms and stoking the coal fires to run the giant boilers and stuff. And then you have this other class that benefits, who are all the class who comes to the dinner party at the inventor's time, the time traveler's yeah. house, who benefit from the physical labors of the working class. Um, who see themselves as, you know, world conquering problem solvers, but really they're the beneficiaries of other people's labors. Um, 
like my favorite thing from the book discussion I hosted on this for work was somebody who said, you know what I would like is to have the kind of household where I could just say, um, go ahead and come early, go ahead and start eating without me because I'm time traveling, dinner will be ready anyway. (laughs) Because I have so much faith in my household servants that they will serve a dinner to all of my friends, even if I'm running Even if I'm not there, they'll be like, yes, just sit down, here's the fabulous dinner. Yeah. Here goes. So he's off noodling around with time travel, but his servants are making it work. And you wonder, like, if he hasn't been back in three years and they're still waiting, I wonder if the servants are just still there, you know, living in a house, doing their thing, or, or what. Right? Like, so. Because they're the Morlocks, right? Like, they're, yeah, they're solving the Morlocks. problems and doing the work and adapting to the circumstances, and he's taken care of. Right. You can just, he can wander in from his time traveling labors and say, bring me my mutton. And they do. Yeah. Here's mutton for you. Eat that. Here, give me a match. And they give him a match. He can smoke his pipe and so forth. So this place that he travels to is at first he thinks a utopia, right? Yeah. It's this beautiful natural world that doesn't have any weeds in it. It doesn't have any. Uh, decay in it. Um, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden in a way. You know, every yeah, I think it definitely fruit falls from the trees, and there's no work left to tame that natural environment. And but interesting, I thought it's still a very English landscape. You know, kind of an Englishman's dream of what the Garden of Eden looks like. But as he goes along, that utopia turns out to be anything but and it I was really interested in relating to the the duality of human nature aspect of this that he's also at first he's concentrating on the the, the good and the beautiful part of this utopia but I thought even at the beginning he recognizes that within it are kind of the seeds of man's downfall that there isn't anything left to do everything is so darned easy for the Eloi that um, there's nothing to strive against and nothing to dominate and that makes people weak and yeah there's no challenge there's no challenge and I felt that was a very Victorian viewpoint this kind of world domination of this need to to fight against nature or other persons or whatever to to make it better that the the greatness is in the striving rather than having the utopia there you think you want this utopia but really you don't you want to be out there weeding your garden Mm -hmm. um is this turning into a pandemic safer at home metaphor because i feel like it could go there everything is a pandemic safer at home (laughs) it really is (laughs) i guess so i don't know made me feel like I need to go weed my beets, you know. Um, Yeah. So I was thinking, like, if you were going to imagine a utopia, okay, so this is the Englishman's utopia is a perfect garden with no weeds and fruit hanging everywhere, but it still looks like England. What is your ideal utopia? And it's okay if it all falls apart later because Morlocks live underneath the ground and come out every night and eat everybody. That's okay. You know, whatever. So what's your utopia look like? you think 
Ooh. I don't know. I mean, I read this question in the notes, and I was like, hmm, I don't know, and I still don't. Yeah. Um, I, was, I mean, I... I, I, I I wrote the question. I don't have an answer for less. Um, but I do sometimes think about like, you know, your perfect day. What does your perfect day look like? I was settled right. um, for that because there's so much, you know, making the dinner to be done that you don't have time to go time traveling. So sometimes I think, hmm, maybe it's, Definitely, I always say the secret of happiness is is options. You know, that if you have yes. options, you have a greater chance at happiness. So maybe having the time and space to choose is a form of utopia. I can buy into that. Yeah, having having an openness would that, be nice. That does lead you to the Eloy's utopia where. They're not spending all day cooking because they just, you know, are fruit. What is it? Frugivorous, he says. Is that right? Something like that. I thought it was a great word. I'm like, awesome word, Mr. Wells. Yes, they eat fruit all day. And there's no work to be done. You don't have to repair your clothes and till the earth and fix the machines and stuff like that. But look what good it has done them to have nothing but free time. They've just turned into silly things yeah I think I'm not a good utopia person yep so there can never be a utopia well I just keep worrying about like what what the Morlocks are doing in my utopia <laughs> like yeah. I yes. don't know if everything so, could just get a little better for everybody that would be starting down the path towards my utopia yeah so strive for justice Yes. And accept that there's always weeds. Yes. Yeah. What a sad thing. I'm all sad now. So, but and, there could be good. And maybe, maybe I should settle for like a really excellent afternoon, you know, and then yeah. go back to work on the striving for justice front. Yeah. Some pulling of the weeds, some striving for justice, some making of dinner with a, with some openness in the afternoon. Yes. And the teaching it's of the children how to make biscuits. Utopia. Yes. Okay. It's good. We can, well, okay, I'll go, I'll go with that. So we'll say that he was kind of on the right track here, maybe, I guess, in terms of of his, his view that the utopia you think you want has its own problems that you can't foresee. Yes. My utopia would have better deliberation of the trade-offs. That's what we have learned. Mm. And, and better, better study of previous situations so you can see what the probable problems are going to be and try to improve your response. Yes, because this is a book about unintended consequences of the Industrial Revolution. And at the end of this book, he comes back and he tells this cautionary tale to the, the, all the people at the dinner table, the, what is there's like the doctor... And the newspaper guy and the other people, powers that be. Yeah. And Everybody has their happened. name by their power, not right. by their name. Yeah, by their name. They're like the, the, the medical man, the whatever man. So, but none of them believe him. 
they all write it off as a, a story or that he's ill or something like that. So here he's come back. You know, we're saying you want to learn from the past and try to do it better. Or here he's coming back and saying to these people, look, here's this mess. I thought it was awesome, but it was not. Turns out uh, dominating nature in all respects turned out badly for us. And now we're somebody's Sunday roast. And none of them believe him. So is it a cautionary. cautionary tale? Yes. So I was kind of intrigued by the ending of this here now novella. So <clears throat> one interpretation of the ending is like the scientists who are presenting the most dire important warnings may disappear in futile attempts to prove that they're correct. <laughs> That's a bad yeah. interpretation. Yeah, maybe. Right? But maybe. He, he like goes back to get proof and never returns. Is it, is it so like hubris? Like I survived this once, I'll survive it again. But he mm. doesn't. So do you, do or you like, think? I have to get proof. Yeah, I have to get proof. And that's what got me. Is like, he's like, I'll, I'll be back in an hour, your time, with proof, which made me think he was going to go to the future. Yes. Because if you go to the past, can you bring proof that any of these people will believe? If you bring me back a you know, brontosaurus tooth, maybe right. they're going to say, well, you just bought that on the brontosaurus tooth market. Right. Um so I would think you'd have to go to the future, but the narrator of that part, he's like, oh, he must have, maybe he went back to the past and is, you know, skinny dipping with the brontosaurus. So where do you think he went? Um, I don't know. I mean, I thought he was going to leave to get proof. And then I just assume something went wrong. Yeah, he was better prepared. He had an, a knapsack and decent shoes and stuff. Presumably lots and lots of matches because fire is like a thing here too. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought, well, maybe he felt bad about Weena who gets dead and that right. he was going to go back to like a time just before he ended up getting her killed uh, and get her. Maybe that's like a mission. Go get Weena. Because he seems sad. He has, comes back and he has these flowers in his pocket that Weena had put in his pocket. And so I thought, well, maybe he's going to go and save her. Bring her back as proof since it was his intention to bring her back beforehand. Right. And then something goes wrong. Or can you go back to the same place twice even? I don't know. We don't know. So maybe he just goes to a place that's better than this and stays there. Maybe. Or his machine breaks. or Yeah, machine breaks and he's stuck somewhere. Or he got something at him. Or terrible crash. Or he, you know, landed in the middle of World War One and, and uh, you know, got bombed. Who knows? But it's... I, I like how my brain was like... Oh, I, Go ahead. I was thinking like, oh, World War One. that's in the past. And I was like, no, no, no. That was in the future for this story. <laughs> it's in his future, yes. That's in his future. His future, our past. 
So, but he didn't show up around here, so he definitely did not come to, you know, here. So he either has to have come to a bad end. But so you, you're assuming he comes to a bad end. I'm assuming, I'm assuming he comes to an end where he can't return. Rather than that, he comes to an end where he chooses not to return. Yeah, because he was the man of science and he really wanted to show everybody his stuff and have them believe him. And and the last thing he says to the narrator is that he's going to return. Right. But it could just be, I mean, he could just be out there, you know, surfing the stars and he'll come back when he's darn good and ready after the end of the story. Maybe it's, maybe it's setting it up for a sequel. How about that? <gasps> that you could write the sequel, dun, dun, the return. Dun. I should have, darn it. I should have written that That's one. What you should have written on a redo. Hectorinus on the the return of the time traveler. Yeah. That's what I should have done for our challenge, which I did not do. Me yeah. neither. I couldn't figure out how to adapt this story or change it. I think you write the sequel. He says he's going to come back. Three years have passed. He has not come back. And so then you could have him return. So what happens next? Has he learned any more about the triumphs or downfalls of man and did he choose to go forward or back or all over the place and and if he went to any time in the next 125 years which we have learned about already as readers Uh what does he see as important or does he notice in that microcosm of landing and looking around And, and does it follow his the narrative that he suggested for us that we're moving forward i mean he's sitting H.G. E. Wells is sitting in 1895, and things are looking pretty good, you know, in right. terms of the Industrial Revolution has happened, and we're making big technological leaps forward, which we certainly make. Um, my grandfather was born in 1886 and died in 1986. And in his 100-year lifespan, he went from horse and buggy to the moon, you know. I right. Mean, it's a big technological leap. So in one way, we did strive for it, but the 20th century is a hot mess. I mean... These huge wars and uh, social strife and all kinds of problems and the rise and fall of political philosophies and everything else. So if he showed up in in 1956, is he going to think that this, this traveling toward the conquering of nature and the making of ease for all thing is a true trajectory of mankind or not? I think it'd be fascinating to write that book. It would. You should write it. You sh- no, no, you should write it. <laughs> <laughs> NaNoWriMo coming in November. You could just write that story. Write a sequel <gasps> to The Time Machine. Or we can just keep brainstorming ideas for things we never have to write. That's true, too. It's right. Or to start like a segment of this podcast. We're like, stories we're totally not going to get around to writing, so y'all should write them. <gasps> that could be a new standard segment. There you go. So people can just go out and write a sequel to The Time Machine and see how they do. And then, you know, if you went and wrote one or I went and wrote one, we're going to write a completely different book anyway. So there you go. What happens next? If the time traveler were to return and speak to the narrator, what is his next story looking like? Where did he go? What happened? I like solid. It. It's, it's solid. Uh, um, which might yes. bring us to a little problem. Listen. Yes. Um, 
we said at the end of the last podcast that we were going to uh, think up reimaginings of uh, stories. How'd that go? How did we end up there? Was this? It was your idea, wasn't it? Um, it was my idea because um, <laughs> a different writer friend had dare was giving me writing dares, and my current one was to write fan fiction. And so I, w- I was like, oh, well, we'll just do it for the podcast. It will be amazing. Um, and it was, like, amazing to think about. And it has led us to this new amazing thing of imagining stories we don't ever have to write. There. There you go. Uh, but uh, so so you, you, you did the dare, yeah? Um, I did the dare. Um, I also separately did my fan fiction writing dare. And uh, my fan fiction writing dare, I ended up using the TV show The O.C. Of course. And I wrote fan fiction um, of uh, the mom in The O.C. in 2020 writing a letter to her soon-to-be-born grandchild about the pandemic and social justice and from a perspective of her being currently estranged from the family where the grandchild was being born. I've never seen the OC either. Well, it's not about any of that. Okay. I just thought that, you know, like, um, it's funny because of the two of us, I'm sure I watch way more television than you do. Um, and I watch very little, but it always amuses me that you love the OC, a television show, since you're a notoriously non-television watching person. Uh, I mean, I just haven't watched TV in like 15 years. Yeah. I, I love and support you, but I'm very unlikely to watch the OC. So did you like your, your fan fiction? Did you? Yeah, I think it turned out okay. Did you enjoy revisiting that world that you know well and, and writing fresh stories or adventures for people in it? I think I think so. Um, I had only rewatched part of season one recently of the OC, so I didn't try to like take into account everything that happens in four seasons of you know drama TV. Um, so I just tried to pick like one element of it and then advance it a whole lot of years till now. I don't know. I'd also never really written fan fiction, so it, I have no idea what like the rules of fan fiction are. So yeah, I don't know if there are rules for fan fiction. I think it's kind of a I don't read it much either. Maybe I should go read some fan fiction. I don't know. But I, I think you just kind of like, do your thing. Have I, your I tried to just lean into that. Like, yeah. I'm just going to lean into doing my thing. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to write about now, like, as fan fiction, than as, like, trying to set some sort of, like, fictional thing now. Okay. Oh, that was my experience. Like, I'm having a lot of trouble thinking of how to write about contemporary fiction set in the pandemic times because everything is so uncertain but writing about now from the perspective of a character that I last touched base with in like 2005 it was easier yeah I know there's been a big discussion in kind of book world of contemporary writers across the genres whether you're writing uh, fantasy or romance or women's fiction or whatever how do you deal with the fact that the pandemic exists? Right. Do you just ignore it because people are reading your books to escape things like reality? Or do you have to deal with it? And I don't know that I've achieved an answer on that yet. I will say that 
I get upset sometimes with modern stories that don't have cell phones in them. Like there has to be, mm-hmm. and I'm writing a modern set story with no cell phones, but there's a reason why my characters can't use them. Uh, because I do get upset with like just regular folk who could totally, you know, use their cell phone to uh, call and say, I have a flat tire and AAA come save me rather than sitting on low on a dark road waiting for the psycho killer to come and whack them, you know? Right. Uh, so part of me is like, well, pandemics happen, and if you're going to write a book set now, you're just going to have to deal with it. Or if you're writing a book set in 2022, you can't just pretend there hasn't been a pandemic. Or, on the other hand, I'm like, who wants to read that? And I don't want to write it, so maybe I'll just pretend there's no such thing. Um, so I do not know what the answer to that is, but I can see how taking refuge in somebody's alternate world construct and putting your your story there has a real comfort factor for people. It did. Um, um, another thing that Nick Hornby did in his forthcoming book is to set it in 2016. Yeah. So even though it's 2020, he's writing about people in England and how they're going to vote in Brexit. Uh-huh. So I, I feel like also like he was for just contempor- fortunate, you know, to have chosen to set it in 2016 before the book's coming out now, or whether people are having to furiously go back and rewrite things to set them two or three years ago. Uh, I mean, it's a huge part of the book. Yeah. So that was just lucky. Um, yeah. So I wonder if maybe there's like a two, three, four year lag of where you set your story versus when it reaches the market, but also yeah. when readers might be ready to revisit it. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Well, we'll see. I guess that'll be a mystery to be solved by the you know, slow grinding mills of the gods. We'll find out. Is that the publish publishing reading relationship? The slow grinding? <laughs> yes, that's the one. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. So we uh, each took a shot at this rewriting a thing. So what I want to know is, do yes. you, I presume we're going to present these to each other. And what I want to know is, do you want to know, do you want to tell each other what our, our thing we're basing it off was beforehand? Or make the other person guess. Um, and do we want to guess the thing or guess the twist? Guess the thing. Like, what was your, your root story? Um, Mine is just terrible. I'm going to tell you that now. No, we should just tell each other. Just tell each other flat out? Yes. Okay, do you want to go first or second? I don't care. Okay. Uh, do you want me to go first? I don't Do you want to go first? I don't mind. I um, decided to use the uh, pub crawl system of one-page synopsis writing to write this. So it's the whole story. Excellent. And because and, uh, I'm a, usually a, a planter, as we say, I have some plans and some figuring out what the story is. So I decided to write a five, it's 596 words, I'll tell you, I wrote, which I you know, hey, and in like 15 minutes, the entire story uh, is if I were, you know, pitching a synopsis. 
and I decided to use The Great Gatsby, which comes <gasps> into public domain January 1st, 2021, as a set in space. <gasps> Love it. So you would think so, but it's terrible. So here we go. Okay. And I used a fantasy name generator to generate the name of the city and all the characters, so I'm not responsible for any of these horrible names. Um, here we go. Love it. The okay. glittering city of Agarith has long been a playground both for the established aristocracy of the galaxy and those who seek to join them. Case, the ambitious son of prosperous but provincial merchants, has arrived in a city looking to make his fortune. Using his family connections, he's managed to secure small quarters that overlook the truly fabulous homes of the rich. His neighbors fascinate him, especially one who seems to exist more in rumor than in flesh, Harlan. When he visits his cousin Lila, he learns that her marriage isn't a happy one and that her husband Mazen is a brutal man who uses his power to keep others in a population suppressed. Mazen decides to use his power to elevate Case in Agarith society. He takes him to the inner sanctum of the city, a place that even Lila does not know about, where those with power can behave however they want without regard to morals or social norms. There, Case meets the sycophants who feed the obsessive appetites of the powerful, including Talira, a woman who seems to know everyone and everything. Fascinated and repulsed, Case finds himself drawn into this world. His head is filled with ever more fantastical tales of the mysterious Harlan. Case finally attends a strange and fabulous party at his neighbor's house. There he unexpectedly encounters Talira, who introduces him to the shadowy figure. As his friendship with Harlan grows, Case is introduced to yet another side of Agareth, an underworld of deal-makers who seek to seize the power of the elites for themselves. Talira and Harlan tell Case that this group of rebels seeks a more egalitarian society based on merit and personal effort. The group promises that they are the cure for the excesses of the ruling class. Case is persuaded to introduce Lila to this world where he feels she might have a chance at happiness. For a time, it seems as though this vision of the future will come to fruition, but cracks start to appear. Case slowly learns that Harlan's story of his past and methods is not entirely true. Talira, who Case has been falling in love with, is showing destructive tendencies, and Lila has grown less enchanted with her shadowy new world as she contrasts it with the luxury of her unhappy marriage. Desperate to use Lila to destroy Mazen, Case pushes her harder to firmly turn against her husband. When Mazen discovers his wife's second life, matters reach a boiling point. He lures the group to the inner sanctum of the city where he feels he can assert absolute control. A fight ensues. When an emotionally broken Lila flees, she accidentally kills the daughter of the city's ruler. Unbeknownst to Case, Harlan decides to protect Lila and help her escape. Mazen decides to use the incident as an opportunity to destroy Harlan by fingering him for the death. Case learns the truth too late. Harlan loses his chance to flee and save himself by waiting for the weak and faithless Lila to come along. Instead, she returns to her gilded cage. With the loss of the leader, the underground resistance crumbles. Case recognizes that both sides within Argolith are inherently flawed, as was his vision of finding greater glory there for himself. He convinces Talira to come back home with him. Although Case has lost his innocence and his trust in the glittering promise of Argolith, he has found a partner in Talira. They board a transport to the provinces where they vow to keep working toward a better future. There you go. That's amazing. 
So did, can you recognize Gatsby in it? Yeah. There you go. I did away with Myrtle for the most part because I just couldn't bear it. And I decided to make Jordan Baker not irredeemably awful. Um, there you go. That was amazing. <laughs> this should definitely be a new standard feature of our podcast. You think so? Oh, boy. <laughs> or right. just like pitching stories we don't actually have to write. Pitching stories we don't have to write. Okay. I can believe it that. Sure. Bad ideas corner. Mm-hmm. We'll call it. Yeah. Bad idea corner. So there it goes. That's my entry in bad idea corner. Uh, and... Uh, it was not a bad idea. There you go. I don't know. Maybe that it I'm, could be like. Oh, go ahead. I don't know that I'm the one to write this one. This, uh, this, um, it's. I don't. Maybe I don't know. There you go. You don't have to write. I don't it. have you to write. Wrote, it. You I, wrote it. I wrote the whole story. Everybody knows what happens and how it ends and who the major characters are and and what yeah. happens. So you have written it. I have written it. So now it's like our own slush pile. There. That's great. So there you go. And I do not know what the name of it is. You know, uh, The Great Gatsby itself went through lots of potential names. Um, and I always liked Between the Ash Heaps and Millionaires. So, um, yeah, well, some sort of title that riffs off of that, maybe. But I don't know what it is. Solid. Solid. So that's what I did. It's The Great Gatsby as a space opera. Okay, well, mine is not written up right. as neatly. Because this is how so I do So I'm mostly going to so tell you, you about you. it. Okay, you're talking about right. it. Right, so, yes. Um, I tried to reimagine Treasure Island <gasps> as a middle grades heist story. Maybe. That's awesome. Um, so in my imagining, because I spent a lot of time thinking about it last night. Um, in my imagining, um, there would be a young middle grades kind of narrator. Um, and I can't decide if it should still be like Jim or right. if it should be like a girl. Um, Gemma. Gemma. <gasps> it could be Gemma. Oh, I like that. <laughs> See, this is how the whole thing's going to go. You just keep inserting better ideas to my face. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> who <coughs> lives with her mother. It's definitely Gemma now. Um, lives with her mother and her mother runs like a bed and breakfast Airbnb. Um, and then the father is, um, they're divorced and he lives in a, like f- across town, but like not in the kind of across town where they ever really see him um, because they are somewhat estranged. And he runs a um, like mini golf amusement park, um, like batting cages and mint themed mini golf Excellent. and, um, you know, like your typical kind of place like that. Um, and it is, of course, Treasure Island pirate themed. That's awesome. Um, yes. And Gemma like never goes there, pretends it doesn't exist, pretends her father doesn't exist and just concentrates on her mother and has for a long time. But they get a visitor at the bed and breakfast. Exactly. Or, and then they get a visitor at the bed and breakfast who interacts with her mother in a way that upsets her mother and her mother convinces her that she needs to go spend the summer helping at her father's mini golf amusement park. So she does. And as she is working there, she um, is helping do repairs and helping do, um, just helping work behind the counter, all of those things and interacting with people. And she starts to notice um, 
sort of mysterious people um, and discovers that there's a bigger mystery um, and also kind of digging into like her parents' relationship. Um, she's always just believed her mom that her dad is bad. Um, so digging into that relationship some in that kind of middle grades way. Um, and so eventually she discovers that her parents originally met at a different amusement park that is also Treasure Island themed um, in another state. And she goes there on an adventure with her dad um, to try to uh, retrieve something that he believes is still hidden there, that he believes is the secret to restoring their family and proving to the mom that he's not a bad person. And Ben Gunn is still the repair person at the original amusement park place um, who has kept the secrets all of these years. Um, and so it's a coming of age story as all middle grade stories should kind of be. Um, I have not figured out the Long John Silver part, except that like Long John Silver would be someone who's driving part of the action, lying to lots of people, trying to still come out on top in a deceitful way. Um, and so my basic concept is that these parents, their old friends are all sort of the pirates. Yes, sketchy. Um, who have, stealed, have stolen from each other, have betrayed each other, and formed various alliances over time um, in order to continue to steal from each other. But the parents are essentially good enough people who have been separated because of all of this, and that Gemma has this coming of age in helping discover the treasure from the past. I like it. That's I, a lot of, like, good, like, there are not enough middle grade mysteries in this world. Uh, I really believe this, that there need to be more. So I can see it, how, and, and amusement parks, including mini golf, have su such great opportunity for, like, slight creepiness, you know? Yeah. Like, the Hall of Mirrors clown scenario is super creepy. So I think, I think you could, I think this could, could work out for you. Right, when, where when, someone else could write it, and I would totally buy it for my child. Absolutely. When you started talking about it, doing Treasure Island, when my child number one was a little tiny person, he liked to watch the same movie or whatever over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, the number of times I've seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is well over the limit that anyone should ever have to watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in their lives. But for a long time, his movie of choice was Treasure Planet. Oh. Have you ever seen Treasure Planet? No. Was not a successful movie. I don't even know why we owned a copy of it to begin with. Or maybe he saw it on TV and just loved it. But it is an animated Treasure Planet set in space with it had like a big cast, um, like a famous cast of various people, uh, like, um, oh my gosh, her name's gone right out of my head. English actress used to be married to Kenneth Branagh. Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson plays the captain of the ship. It's kind of fun. I know. It's like, and it's, it, it's weird, uh, but it's a terrible movie, uh, but he loved it so, and he watched it over and over and over again and the dvd of it broke oh i know is the worst and we had to like go online 
and find someone who had a used copy of that dumb movie because you couldn't buy it new anymore and send away for it and get a new DVD of it to come so he could continue to watch it uh, daily. And I think we bought two copies because we were so freaked out that it would break again and, and our three-year-old would come unglued, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yes. But So at first I thought, oh, she's going to go, because you read a lot of science fiction, I thought, oh, it's going to be Treasure right. Planet, a new version. But I like your like contemporary, middle grade, mystery with relationships and, and growing up is awesome. So, yes, people of the podcast world, go write that book. And write Marion's book, too. Yeah, go write them. But and after 2021, back. when it's in public domain. Right. Is it is it coming up in time? Yeah, mine. Well, I figured it's July. Nobody's going to get that written before January 1st. It's, it's so true. It's just fine. So, so true. I, I cheated a little bit because it's not in public domain yet, but it chaps my hide that it's not in public domain because it should be. came out in 1925. should be well in the public domain by now, except it changed the law. So, and all, and, and all that money goes to Princeton University anyway. It's not like Fitzgerald's family's making any money on it. So, and that's the perfect book for you to <laughs> rework. I figured, you know, go big or go home. So, yeah, that's it. So, I think we survived that challenge well. And uh, if you I think, think so. up anything for Bad Idea Corner next time, just bring it right along. I'm going to keep calling it Slush Pile. <laughs> Well, I'm going to call it Bad Idea Corner. So all of mine. Are. Awesome. Slush pile is good too, but only if we get. Those are not bad after. ideas. Yeah, if only we get slushies, slushies after, we'll do that. So go. That'll be the recipe segment. Yeah, the recipe segment. Biscuits and then slushies, and pie. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. More food-based content is what we need here. For sure. Um, so why do we think that people do these, like, reimagining classic works rewrites? Because it's a, definitely a thing. It is a big thing. Um, I think one reason is that it gives a potential reader an idea of what the book is like. You know what I mean? Like, you liked Cinderella, so maybe you'll like Cinder, which is, of course, Cinderella set in space with robots, I guess, kind of people, cyborg Cinderella. So, I th and I think maybe on the writer front, it makes it easier to pitch. You can say, I'm writing a book that's a, a reworking of X and it gives people that you're selling your book to a, a notion, maybe? Yeah, I think so. I think it makes it fun for the reader, too, to, like, figure out what they recognize yeah. and see what the twist is and, and maybe do that thing that we kind of did, like, with mine, but also with, um, last night I was in a book discussion where we read a Sherlock Holmes story and one of the people said, oh, that's not where I thought that was going at all. Um, I thought it was going to be this. And I was like, oh, yeah, we should totally write that. Like, yeah, we should write that other ending from these other red herring clues. You know, it lets the reader think through what they would have done differently a little bit more openly because you, because the reader's already engaged in that playing with the original story. There you go. Sure. I don't know. I mean, because readers kind of imagine stuff while they're, I mean, they do sure. imagine things while they're reading. Yeah. So if, the, if this encourages them to do even more imagining. Then it's good. Then that's good, I think. Mm 
Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, in, in the big world of books, how do you, as a reader, know what to choose? And if you, if you say, well, if you liked Sherlock Holmes, you'll like this Charlotte Holmes book. Those, right. Those, those, right? Um, but I can't remember who writes them. Or you'll like, and there's, of course, a million TV renderings of Sherlock Holmes in different right. guises. So you say, well, you like this thing, you'll try that thing. And it helps you pick something out of the, the crushing overload of media that you could consume with almost a guarantee on it or yeah 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 excellent okay well i think we survived that very well i think we did too okay yay for us for challenging ourselves yay, a little yay for us see we're going to challenge ourselves and grow and not turn into eloy <gasps> that is the takeaway from this entire there you podcast go. it is going to be great and the good news is we will never conquer the book world so we never have to worry about stagnating and and growing frail but pretty i mean we can be frail and pretty <laughs> and also continue to strive yes okay um so next time i think i've convinced you to try a john scalzi book you have because you're always telling me to go read a john scalzi book I mean, I do really like John Scalzi books. Yes. Um, As whereas, I just like John Scalzi personally because I listen to or read or not listen to, but read his Twitter feed. So in a way, I feel like I know, kind of know John Scalzi a little bit, in ter- at least in terms of his public persona. Yes, because, of course, Twitter is always public persona. Sure. Um, even if you didn't intend it to be. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, um, so I think Old Man's War would be a good place to start. Um, it was published in 2005 originally. And it's the first book in the Old Man's War series, but it was not written necessarily to be the first book in a series. Um, so you won't have to keep reading if you don't want to. Um, and it is um, science fiction and there is a, a good deal of it takes place in space. But it starts on Earth, and it starts with the main character, John Perry, um, and it is told in first person. I'm almost sure. I'm pretty sure. Um, And John Perry, um, it starts like on his 75th birthday um, when he joins the army. And so, um, so it does some world building at the beginning about like what in the world that means and what's going on. Um, And it is the space army. (laughs) And so um, he then goes into space and then a whole lot of other things happen. And it's lovely and it's creative and it's, um, I don't know, it's a fun, it's a fun reimagining of a bunch of stuff. I am, I am here for fun reimaginings. Yeah. Excellent. So Old Man's War by John Scalzi. Yes. Um, and I um, discovered John Scalzi um, after listening to the audiobook of Ready Player One that was narrated by Will Wheaton and then proceeding to um, explore other audiobooks narrated by Will Wheaton. So my path to him is, um, you know, strange and yet has been <laughs> lovely. And I even like his audiobooks that are not narrated by Will Wheaton 
um, this book is not narrated by Will oh, Wheaton. Man. I was kind of hoping I would get a twofer here. I think both, it's William DeFries, though. Yeah, I don't think I've ever listened to an audiobook narrated by Will Wheaton, so I'll have to try one of those on this. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelists at gmail.com.